Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Barry Creamer. Dr. Creamer has served as president of Criswell College since 2014, after spending a combined 10 years as both a member of the faculty and as the vice president of academic affairs. A trained philosopher and historian, Dr. Creamer holds a BA in English from Baylor University, an MDiv from Criswell College, and a PhD in Humanities from the University of Texas at Arlington. For more than 20 years, Dr. Creamer pastored churches across Texas, and he continues to preach conferences, teach lay audiences, and serve as interim pastor for churches in transition. Dr. Creamer has spent over a decade hosting his own podcast, Coffee with Creamer, a program covering relevant issues in ethics, ministry, and worldview, and has served on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. His writing has been featured on numerous print and electronic platforms. Without further ado, Dr. Barry Creamer. Okay, I put on the mic I found down here, and apparently it's the right mic, so I appreciate that. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to Psalm 139 with me, the 139th Psalm. I'm going through the book of Psalms myself right now uh, for the first time, studying each Psalm on the way through. I've not made it to 139 yet. I've made it through 70 uh, Psalms, preaching on uh, Sundays or chapels or wherever I'm preaching. I'm just going through the book of Psalms. But this coming Sunday, uh, I will do something I've been doing for the last, I don't know, dozen years or so, uh, which is preaching a Sanctity of Life Sunday at a church, Leonard, First Baptist Church in Leonard, Texas. Uh, I was invited there ages ago by a pastor who was there, and now there's another pastor there, uh, both of which uh, are uh, associated with our school. This one is an alumnus, a graduate of our school, uh, of Criswell College, and so I'm very excited to be able to go and preach for him. Sanctity of Life Sunday, you know, was uh, something established a while back. Uh, sort of in, uh, as a reminder to all of us of this horrific decision that was made back in the 1970s about Roe v. Wade. And so Sanctity of Life Sunday was an opportunity for us as a church just to remind ourselves of the value of every human being, that we're all made in the image of God, and that those little babies that are so easily discarded by society before uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned uh, were all important and they needed to be remembered. So you would think to yourself and say, well, you know, Roe v. Wade's been overturned. I mean, that's not the law of the land anymore. So why are you still having a Sanctity of Life Sunday? Well, part of it is just people do it because it's residual. They're used to doing it. And so we're going to have a Sanctity of Life march this coming week and all that kind of stuff because they're just used to doing it. But part of it is because we're just uh, a little naive if we think that everything is settled now just because a court decision was made. Uh, Things are not settled by the courts. They are established in a society beyond that. And 
the judgments of people matter as well. And there are states that have laws that uh, preclude abortions like ours, and there are states who don't. There are states who actually encourage it to happen. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, after, the, uh, uh, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, actually took uh, aggressive steps to make abortions easier to obtain in the nation of Israel. And obviously, lives are not made more sacred because they're in the United States or not in the United States. So internationally, uh, this is also an issue. I'm bringing it up for that reason. But also because other states within the United States uh, have taken steps to make abortion more easily accessible. And so have Internet providers and all of that kind of stuff. And so there's always an ongoing concern that we uh, remind people of the value of every human life. So we're a little naive if we think a court ruling has just taken care of the issue and everything's going to be fine now. That's just not the way, that's just not the way it works. Secondly, we would be naive. Let's suppose every government entity and every majority social interest in our culture all agreed that abortion would no longer be legal, that it would no longer be available, and that it's not the most viable option. Even if all of those things were true, we would be naive to think that the past 50 years of laws and practices and the experience of 50 million children's lives being lost through abortion would not shape the way we think about life in our society. We would be naive to think that it hasn't changed the way we regard human life in our culture. We have. We've changed the way we think about it. And part of that change is reflective of a way a significant part of our society thinks about life to begin with, that it's sort of accidental. You know, life happens and, you know, I had sex and Lo and behold, I got pregnant, and I don't know, what an accident. You know, I don't know what to think about that. And physically and biologically, that's what we would say. Oh, well, it's just, you know, you happen to get pregnant. As if there is no creator. As if no one is overseeing the world and actually giving value to the souls that come into existence. And we know as believers that that's not the case. And yet, the way we actually think about life, we just think some people are in the same way we would say biologically an accident. We literally think this human being came into, into existence by accident. How could this happen? You know, we're, we're sort of stunned or surprised by it. And so we look for solutions that would treat uh, this human being as if they're not there on purpose. So it makes sense to have a Sanctity of Life Sunday even after Roe v. Wade is overturned. I'm saying all of that for reasons that will make sense to you as we get to the end of the message today of Psalm 139. But my, my point in coming to Psalm 139 with you today is, I'm preaching it this Sunday, so I'm, I figured it's time for me to study this psalm. I've never preached this whole psalm. I've used portions of it uh, on Sanctity of Life, just like everybody else has on that topic, because this section in the middle of it about how God made us in, in the inner parts of his mother and so on, you know, all those, all those you formed me and I'm wonderfully made and all that. We've all used that for Sanctity of Life, but I thought it would be important for us to put it back in its context. And lo and behold, 
it does have something to say to us. So let's start in Psalm 139. This is to the choir master, a Psalm of David, starting in the first verse now. And I, I guess I'll just tell you all this up front uh, so that we can actually finish today. I will, it's a, it, you get a briefer version of what we're doing today because we wanna pray with you at the end to sort of get the semester started. So as we're looking through it, I'll ask you to notice this. The psalm is, you know, it's 24 verses. It's divided into four sections of six verses. And it's fairly obvious. Divisions are fairly obvious. But also within each of those divisions, there's a division. There are four verses that are in one theme, and they're very obviously united. And then there are two verses that follow it, and they create the transition toward, and it's not just an introduction to the next section, it is a transition based on what we just learned, what would lead us into the next section. So we'll go six verses at a time, four of those establishing an idea, and then two leaning toward the next idea and why that next idea is so important. So you'll see that in all four of these sections. It's fairly obvious. Starting in, so we'll start with verses one through six. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So as you take this first section, you can tell, and it's in the first verse, he's describing how God knows. And uh, again, for those of you who I haven't done a psalm with before, and if you haven't thought about the psalms carefully, you have to remember the psalms are first and most true about the Messiah. This is David's psalm. He's the one who's communicating to his father about these things. And so we first see it fulfilled in the Messiah. So as I say these things about God's chosen one, I am saying it that way because it's about his anointed one, about the Messiah. So David can say, you searched me and you have known me, right? But that's also true about us in the Messiah. So it becomes true about us as we're in Christ. And so that's why I'll use the language of the chosen one because we are also chosen. And as we're chosen, because we're in Christ, simply because we're in Christ, my whole theology is there is one chosen, there's only one elect, and that's Christ. Everybody else is elect because they're in Christ. Same with righteousness. There's only one who's righteous, that's Christ. Everybody else is righteous because they're in Christ, right? So that's how I'm reading it. And that's what I want you to hear when I say his chosen. God knows his chosen. Skin in. Skin in is language that you use in philosophy when we talk about epistemology and a few other things you know, how do you know things? And what we mean by it is, and you don't have to do philosophy with me here, I'm gonna say it briefly, so you may get this or not get it, but those of you who are in philosophy get it. When we say all of your experiences are actually skin in, meaning you think to yourself, you're seeing a wall over there, but you're not seeing a wall over there. You're seeing all the interactions that you have in your mind because 
in your retina, you've got interactions going on. Your experience, by the time you have it, where you're thinking, there's a wall over there, all of that experience is being had by you skin in. And you're the only one having it. So that when I say, what color does that look like to you? You know, when I say, what color does that look like to you? And I don't know, what color does that look like to you? Vicki, what color is the wall? Thank you. That's exactly what I was going for, whatever. So it's eggshell colored, okay. So how do you know? Y'all know this question, right? In epistemology, you talk about this. But also, when you're three years old, you talk about this, right? So how do you know that your eggshell, which I would also call eggshell now, I'm happy calling it eggshell. How do you know that your eggshell is not my pink? You know, so I'm experiencing pinkness while you're experiencing eggshellness, right? You know that question, right? You've done that with people. You, you ask that question because the experiences you're having are inside of you. And I don't have access to you. I don't have any way to know that your cold color scheme is different. In fact, I don't even have any way to know whether the way you're experiencing visual cues is equivalent to the way I have audio cues. I don't know that your pink is like bing. I, don't, I just don't know what's going on in your mind. But we've all learned to have this shared vocabulary. Don't worry. We're not staying on philosophy. I just want this part. There's a thing in philosophy called, about the self called privilege and privacy. So I have privileged access to my experiences. When I have an experiences, I've just had it. You know, when I'm hungry, you can't tell me I'm not because I'm the one experiencing it, right? So I have privileged access to myself. But I also have privacy. You don't have any access to myself. So when I say to you, I have a stomach ache and I can't go to school today, you don't know whether I'm having a stomach ache or not. And you can pretend that you know, but you don't know because you're not experiencing what I experience. What this is saying is that the Lord, Yahweh, knows his chosen ones skin in the way only they would know themselves if they knew themselves fully. And even they don't know themselves the way he does. He knows everything about us, skin in, in a way no one else possibly could. And even before the words are formed and on our tongue, he already knows what we're going to say. He knows us better than we know ourselves, so to speak. So the Lord knows us skin in is what's going on. And prominently in the first four verses, obviously, this is the point. No matter what I do, no matter where I go, no matter what's going on inside of me, you know everything about me. You have searched me and you have known me. You're acquainted with all of my ways before a word is even on my tongue. You know it all together. But then he shifts a little bit. And in verses five and six, he says, you hem me in so that uh, you lay your hand upon me so, uh, so that if I were to understand this fully, it would be, I would realize that it's more than I can even comprehend. So the, the statement, we use it as sort of an interjection. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Uh, and, and it could be this. It could be that David is just having an emotional experience and he says, oh, it's just so great. I can't, I can't measure up to this. I, I just can't attain it. I think Actually, he's comparing his own knowledge with God's knowledge. The knowledge you have of me is so wonderful, I can't have that kind of knowledge. You know things I can't even comprehend. I think that's what he's doing is creating a comparative about how much knowledge he has and God has. But notice the framing of it in verse 5 is that you know me so well, you know so well my paths and the direction I'm going to go even, 
that you're able to hem me in. You're able to put a hedge in front of me and behind me so that no matter where I am, you're already there. Meaning, God's knowledge of his chosen one, and I will say us also, because again, in Christ, we're also chosen. So God's knowledge of his chosen implies his presence with his chosen. It's not like we run off like Jonah into the wilderness and escape or into the sea and escape God's presence. God already knew that was going to happen. So of course, God is already there. So God's knowledge implies his presence and in some way his blessing on him. So in verse seven, the focus becomes that. God is present with his chosen. So so in verses seven through 12, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And this is, you know, it's, it's equivalent to what we're going to see later in Jonah's experience of trying to flee, but he's not going to flee. If I ascend to heaven, you're there in this merism. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and then dwell in the farthest reaches of the evening, the west, the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And he goes on in verse 11 and says this, and you can hear sort of the shift here. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even if I were to go to a place where maybe your presence isn't obvious because it's dark, it's night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. But the idea in verses seven through 10 is obvious. God is present with us no matter where we go. He's already there. We anticipated that coming because he knows us. So his knowledge implies his presence and God is present with his chosen no matter where they go. But in verse 11, the implication is that his presence provides safety for us. So we might think of it otherwise, well, it's just providing light. But, you know, in their world, darkness is danger. And in David's Psalms, repeatedly, night is when he's in the wilderness or in the woods fleeing from his enemies who are opposing him. And he's waiting for the break of dawn for day to bring safety with it and to bring protection or to bring knowledge of how things have gone or whatever. And so as he's describing darkness and night, he's describing a place where maybe he would go and God wouldn't be present. But then he says, but even there, even in the middle of the night, you're there. And if you were to put it in terms that relate it to another psalm, Psalm 119, you would use the language, "Your, your, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. You know, the Lord is the one who's providing a direction and safety for us. So in verses 7 through 12, you have God being present with his chosen ones, implying in his presence their safety. So now we get through verses 13, verses thir- uh, from verses 13 through verse 18. For you formed my inward parts. You, this is, uh, something is transpiring here on the basis that God is our creator. I almost, I would have taken, if we'd had more time, I would have done this experiment with you just to see what the response was. But you know, if you describe God, describe a bunch of different ways but if you say what is God not just who is God but what is God then what would your answer be you know redeemer whatever all these other terms 
But one of the first things I think that would come to mind is creator. God is the creator. That's, that's what he is to the cosmos. He's the creator. And so here, David appeals to that in verse 13. And the idea is we start reading it, and as we read through it, I want you to have this in your mind, because we pull this little section out all the time to talk about how important, how sacred life is, human life is, because God is the one who formed us. He certainly formed the chosen one, right? And he forms his chosen, so you formed my inward parts. These are descriptions of the creation. And so what he's going to be describing here effectively is this, because he says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And even the language here where I'm being knit together in the mother's womb, and then down in verse 16 when he ends this section on the far end of our existence, that every day of my life to its end is already known by you. So from the very beginning, in fact, before I was formed, you already knew me, but also you have all these days recorded for me all the way to the end of my life, all of that description about God's knowledge for us is predicated on the fact that he's the one who created us. He's the one who created us and not just created us, you know, as a lump of protein that became a human being, but created our inward parts, our soul. And again, to put it in the language of the Psalms generically, or even in, in, in Jesus' own words when he talks about losing your own soul because you exchange your life for whatever things you're going to possess in this world. Unless you lose those things in this world, you can't find your soul. The soul is, not, the soul is just inherently in Scripture identified with our purpose, with the thing God actually wants to do with us. And so the idea here is that God's knowledge and presence are so important in the beginning of the psalm. The root to that knowledge and presence is the fact that he's the one who created our soul and our purpose. So it's not like God happens to study us enough that he can figure out what our thoughts are going to be. He created your inward parts. Of course he knows what your inward parts are. And it's not like God has to figure out where we're going. He created our path. He knows where we're going. So, of course, he hems us in before and behind. So, in verse 13, as we start reading it, you see the relationship between that knowledge and presence and the fact that he's the creator of our soul and purpose. So, in verse 13, because you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You know, Sarah and... And, and Kevin and I have had conversations about the beautiful womb and tomb imagery that's in all of literature. And it's nowhere more obvious than it is right here that you begin and end in the same place. So as he describes being formed in this fundament, this place in the foundations of the earth, he's describing what ends up also being where we end. You know, it's just the nature of uh, the way we describe things. And so David's using that language. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. Here, here comes this imagery. When I was being made in secret, when I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
There's a lot of beautiful language in here we don't have time to get into today, but, you know, this is describing the golem, you know, and if you've, if you've heard of a golem before, if you've heard that language before, you know what I'm referring to. The unformed substance, this, we're, we're, this, we're this creature that doesn't have a purpose or a fulfillment until God gives it to us. That's what he gives to us. That's what he's creating. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, but in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. When as yet, and he goes back to the beginning of the merism in this case, when as yet there was none of them. You saw all my days all the way to the end before any of them were even in existence yet. And then he concludes with those two verses that make the transition into the next section for us in verse 17. How precious How valuable are your thoughts, O God, toward me? How vast is the sum of your thoughts toward me? If if I would count those thoughts, they're more than the sand, again, appealing to the creation as a way to say, and, and yet this is about him creating me and caring about me. If I count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And I think, you know, our tendency to focus on God's sovereignty, which is right, obviously, God can do anything He wants to do, sometimes erases the purpose that God has given to His sovereignty. He can do anything He wants, absolutely anything. He can just choose to walk by here and step on all of us and we all die like Godzilla versus Bambi. If you've never seen the cartoon, it's very funny and very short. Uh, it's, it's, you know, he can do that if he wants to. God walks by and, oh, all the Criswell students are dead now. Okay, well, who are we going to complain to? He's God. He's sovereign. He can do anything He wants. Weirdly, though, that's not what He does with His sovereignty. That's not what He does with His power. And so if we were to go back to Job and hear the words expressed, you know, at the end, after everybody's spoken, they've all given their complaints and their arguments to Job, and Job's given his arguments back, and Elihu has even spoken and given his what sounds like a pretty reasonable case, God himself answers and says, this is, this is what it says in Job 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dress for action like a man? I will question you. Make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now, I know we take that as simply God basically standing up and saying, where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? And he can do that if he wants to do it. It's up to him. But there's more to it than that because the book doesn't end with God saying to Job, okay, I accomplished what I wanted. I proved I was sovereign. Too bad for you. You don't get anything. It doesn't end that way. It ends with Job praying for his friends and God blessing Job abundantly and everybody celebrating the blessings that come on Job from God, a God who could do anything he wanted, actually cared about the end of Job, which is what James teaches us about Job, by the way. We, we know Job, James reminds us, and we know the end of the Lord. That he's very gracious. You know, we understand mercy 
from God because of the book of Job, not just sovereignty. And so my appeal to all of that was just to get us to this passage in James that makes this point in the first chapter of James when he says, do not be deceived, do not err, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. Now, we just kind of stop there, you know. Well, God doesn't change and he's good. But James doesn't stop there. He says, of his own will, God brought us forth by his word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James's point isn't, you know, don't, don't make any mistakes. Whenever you do receive something good, it's from God. But, you know, when something bad comes, that's from God, too. That's not James's point. James even says, hey, when you're tempted, don't blame God. Don't blame God. It's not his fault. That's in you. That's not in him. God hasn't changed his mind. And what did he do when he created you? He created you for a purpose. He created you for an end. And if, God, if there's no shadow of turning in God, if there's no variation in God, what James is saying in is that just like God was being good to you when he created you, just like he created you for a purpose and an end, in this moment that you're going through, God has a good purpose, a good end that he wants to come from that. Does that mean everything in your life that happens is good? You didn't read the rest of the book of Job, did you? It doesn't work out that way. That's not how it plays out. But God never changed his mind about the value of Job or Job's purpose or how God's intention for Job was good in all of that process. And he says exactly the same thing to us in the book of James. So when we come back to Psalm 139 and we, and we see in verse 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. What he's saying is, you know me inside and out and you care about me. You are with me no matter where I go. You care about my safety, protecting me. You're walking with me and you do all of that because you're the one who created me. You created me with a purpose that you wanted me to fulfill, not God is willing to join up with what you want to accomplish and make you feel better about the things you're doing with your life. That's not what this is about. This is not just about pointing at other human beings and saying, look how valuable that person is. It's not just that. This is going beyond that and saying, God created that person for a reason, and he created me for a reason. This is what it is to believe in God. To believe in God is to believe in a creator who has an intent for you that has not changed. Neither has his ability to fulfill it. And so where does he go in verse 19? Oh, that you would slay the wicked. I've read this you know, so many times, and when you're doing a Sanctity of Life Sunday, you know, you read it, and you just want to skip this section. It's like, oh, yeah, and then there's this judgment part. And then let's just get down to verse 23. Search me, oh, God. Okay, let's just get to the good part. Read this with me in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh, God. David's a mighty warrior. I mean, he's killing bears and lions and Goliath when he needs to, Right? I know we describe him like he's a scrawny runt and what could he do? He's a mighty warrior before he ever goes out to face Goliath. I mean, not very many people kill a bear or a lion with their bare hands. It just doesn't happen. So, and by the way, when all the mighty men are lined up, they're not as great as David is. David's greater than they are. So this is, you know, a great warrior who does not say, 
let me slay the wicked on your behalf, O God. No. He got out a pen and wrote a poem. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Why? Well, these men of blood are trying to kill me. And he's still not picking up his sword to fight the battle. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against, not me, you, Lord. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. These are not the people I choose to hate because they hate me. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them, those who are your enemies, with perfect, complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That doesn't mean now I can take out my sword and kill them. It means I come to you and say, Lord, if they come to me, I'm chosen by you. My purpose is yours. I was created for you. You're the one who hems me in before and behind. So they're your enemies. You deal with them. The chosen one, those who are chosen in our case, entrust their soul, their purpose, their life, their being to the one who created their soul, their life, their being, and their purpose to the Lord. To the one who creates us, and just in the language of the psalm, in the three, three sections that came before this, he's saying, I entrust my soul when I have enemies who are going to come after me, I entrust my soul, I entrust my purpose, I entrust everything that I have to the one who created me and who knows me and who keeps me, who hems me ahead and behind. I say all of that to get to verse 23 then, when he says in these last two verses, search me, O God, and know my heart. You know, I, he already said at the very beginning, you know my thought, you know my inward being, you know everything about me. But here he says in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any, and uh, the ESV translates it as grievous. I think the King James said wicked, something like that. Um, it's the word that's used in Genesis 3.16. It's the, it's the pain and toil word that's used repeatedly in Genesis 3.16 to pronounce the curse on the earth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Curse on the woman, right? In, in sorrow, you're going to labor. In pain, you're going to bring forth children. It's that word. That word shows up here with David saying to the Lord, you know my inner soul and you are with me everywhere because you created me. You created my inner soul and you created my purpose, the path that I'm supposed to walk down. So of course you're with me the whole way. And when enemies rise up to face me and to conquer me and defeat me, I'll remember that you're the one who created and knows and keeps me and I'll entrust their judgment to you. But I still have a problem. I think there are things in me that aren't on your path. And so I'm asking you to search me and know my heart and try my thoughts and see if there's any of the fallen way in me. If there's any of that toiling, battling, grieving way in me. 
some of which would be him taking his enemies into his own hand, by the way. I think as the psalm reads, that's part of what he would be implying. But in contrast to that, lead me in the way everlasting. So when we talk about verses 13 through 18, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, my soul knows it very well. When we talk about that in terms of all the little children that should have been protected in the womb from, uh, you know, from abortion, just to be frank, when we use that language to describe our own lives as being valuable to God, we're misusing it unless we remember that the value of our lives is in the purpose for which God created them. That's why he created us, for the purpose for which he created us. So the value of the sanctity of life that we hold is entirely wrapped up in our commitment to the purpose of the life that he's given us. Are we fulfilling the purpose for which he called us? I'm not going to give you the details because we don't have time, but I would use the example of, of building, like uh, this nuclear plant in southern Indiana was going to be built. They spent billions of dollars on it, about $2.5 billion on it. And then Three Mile Island happened. This was back in the late 70s, early 80s. Three Mile Island happened, which was a nuclear meltdown and, you know, problems. And people started doubting the nuclear industry for good reasons and other reasons. And, uh, and then they gave up on it. And it's been there ever since. It's, it's been there. They, they've just started demolishing it not too long ago, a couple of years ago or something like that. And so, this, you know, this giant nuclear power plant with all of the facilities that go with it is out there. And the rooms are empty. Nothing's in it. Totally unused. It's probably a game room for employees. It's just sitting there, you know, nobody in it. And we, we can say, oh, look how valuable that is. Two and a half billion dollars worth of building. We can say that about each other, you know. Your life is worth an inestimable amount. There is no money. There is no dollar figure to put on it. Hey, give me, give me a couple of million dollars, I'll take Misael down. No, I don't think so, you know. His life is worth more than a couple of million dollars. Well, how much more? Well, there's not a dollar figure, you know. So we walk around and we have this inestimable value. So look, at, look at how valuable I am. And if we're not accomplishing the will of God, if we're not searching out the will of God, if we're not walking in the path that God has given us, it's as empty as that nuclear power plant. It's as empty as a building that was never occupied. Yeah, God invested everything in putting you here and in creating you, but he did it for his purpose. It's exactly the same as this semester. Untold numbers of people have invested untold amounts of resources in getting you into a classroom or to listen to a lecture or to whatever. But all of this is empty. It's an empty shell unless we fulfill God's purpose for it in this semester. And so that's what we want to commit ourselves to now. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.